All right, as they pass the baskets, uh, like I said, John is, is in Guatemala with Team One. Um, they'll be getting back Saturday night. Um, and so I get the, the privilege of speaking with you this morning. Um, I just um, got back. We, I took six of our seniors, our graduating seniors, uh, to Niagara Falls this week. We went from Tuesday to Friday. Uh, we went on to a couple different state parks, did some hiking and, and trails. Uh, we went to Niagara Falls and, and saw the falls, went to Canada by accident. Uh, <laughs> well, we were going to go to Canada, but we somehow ended up a lot sooner than we expected when it said, Peace Bridge to Canada, no exits. Um, but we made it, and uh, we had a really good time. It rained on us several nights, and the girls' tent got soaking wet because they didn't set it up right. I helped. <laughs> I helped them and I didn't do it right, so they can blame me. Uh, but we, we had a really good time, um, so just thought I'd share with that. Uh, that's kind of what my week was, as well as uh, occasionally working in the tent um, and before on the message for today. We are in the second week of our series. You can see the banners up there, Conversations with Jesus. Um, you know, and every summer we look to find a series that, as a lot of you are in and out through the summer, uh, that you can connect with even if you're here just this one week. Uh, and so that's our hope that we can uh, teach you something about Jesus um, through his conversations with different people through the Gospels. And so today um, we are going to, boy, that's, I better not bend down. Uh, we, we are going to look at a passage dealing with faith. So I thought I would start it out by this. Who in your mind shows the greatest, greatest faith in the Old Testament? Think about it for a second. Who in your mind shows the greatest faith in the Old Testament? Now, this is a little interaction here, so I need your participation. Who would you say greatest faith in the Old Testament? Okay, I heard Noah. Noah built the ark, right? Uh, if you don't know the story, you should read your Bible. Um, <laughs> seriously. And uh, it's not that long. It's like a chapter. Um, and right, he builds the ark after God says he's going to destroy uh, the world because of the corruption that had taken place. Uh, and so he builds, right, an ark, uh, despite everyone calling him crazy and insane. Uh, and he goes about this for years to build this. Uh, it's a tremendous story and saves his family uh, through that. All right, what's another one? Joseph. Joseph is a great one, right? Uh, despite, even as we're singing, right, despite the storms in his life, constantly saying, you are Lord of all, being sold into slavery, working his way out of that, being tossed back into prison, constantly having people accuse him of things he did not do, yet God's hand was on him, right? And he continued to rise. Uh, great, great story of faith. I heard Abraham, right? Abraham, if you don't have Abraham on your heroes of faith, you need him. Uh, he is, right, kind of the founding father, the one that God made the covenant with, uh, that he was going to take him and make him a great nation despite being an old man with no children. And so he promised to have, right, generations, children, sons, daughters, as numerous as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky, right? And God fulfills the promise and talks about him being faithful. What's another one? Job. Job. Oh, 
is not, that's, that's a hard story, right? Noah, well, Noah's just as bad maybe, but Job, right? Everything is lost. Everything is lost. His land, his property, his sons, right? His livestock, everything is taken away. And yet he is still faithful in his belief in God. One more. Daniel. Daniel. Thrown into the lion's den, right? Taken out of his, taken out of his town, taken, cap, captured by the Persians, right? Being made to serve them, yet being faithful to God and the laws that God had decreed with the food that he ate, right? Despite maybe punishment or death. Praying despite then being thrown into the lion's den when he was told not to and surviving that. Seeing his friends thrown into the fiery furnace. Great stories of faith. And so that's what comes to my mind when I think about faith. Those Old Testament heroes of faith. Not without their flaws, right? Uh, but heroes of faith. And then I think about the New Testament. And some of the people that I think of the New Testament of great faith, some of the disciples or the apostles, um, and the faith that they showed in the, the early Christian church, that despite persecution and threats, they thrived and multiplied. And the word about Jesus and the resurrection went out. And many of them died for their belief, for their faith. But there's one this morning that we're going to talk to, talk about that Jesus uh, specifically commends, and in a way that is nowhere else in the Bible, uh, that this person's faith actually made Jesus, it says, marvel or like stand in amazement because of his faith. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think about faith, if I could make God marvel at my faith, that would be a goal to try to achieve, right? You could make God look at you and go, I cannot believe the faith he is showing. I can't believe the faith that she has. My faith is often wavering. I don't know about you. Uh, sometimes I have high highs where I'm like, man, God is so good, is so faithful. I trust him completely. And then other times it is hard. Right? Especially when things start going wrong, people start getting sick, dying, not going to plan, you feel like God is distant, my faith sinks, and it's very hard to still trust Him and believe that He is Lord, Lord of all. So, for me, as I was picking a story about Jesus and a conversation He had with someone, this one jumped out to me of the list that we're going to be talking about this summer that. I really wanted to talk about because it's also, you know, as you speak up here, it's not just me speaking to you. I mean, this is speaking to me. This is what God's convicting me of about how my faith should look, how my faith should be. And by reading this, that increases my faith. By studying this, this increases my faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. So that's the hope this morning, that your faith would increase from what we talk about. So, the story, as I'm kind of alluding to it, um, is found two times in the, in the Gospels. It's found in Matthew and in Luke. Um, and it is a story of a Roman centurion. Um, and the interaction 
that goes on with that. So let me, a little background. Right now, we are just after the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Like, the best sermon ever. Um, Jesus gets up, and he's talking to the multitudes, right? And blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, right? They will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted, right? And he gives this huge talk about this. Um, something we, something most of you probably know about. And so he gives this big talk, and, and crowds are starting to follow him. Um, and he's starting to get a name for himself. He's actually starting to heal people of, of their diseases, of, of being sick. He's actually, just before this story, heals somebody of leprosy. And so the word is probably going out, and people are starting to talk about Jesus. I mean, think about when something happens in our town. Uh, or someone starts doing something, and, right? The buzz starts to, to go out. And before long, depending on how big it is, what happens is the faster it kind of spreads. And Jesus's, uh, I don't know, fame is the right word, but Jesus is being talked about by everyone because he's teaching like no one ever teached, and he's healing like no one has ever healed. Have you ever maybe it's going to be today, heard a really good message or a teacher <laughs> that after you were done with it, you were kind of blown away. Like, I never saw things that way. Or I never thought about it this way. I love watching, uh, you know, other preachers online. And sometimes you get one and you go like, wow, like, that was awesome. I've never thought about it this way. He taught in a way that it, I'm, I can't even describe what it was like. You need to go listen to this. And you start telling people to listen to this sermon or this talk. Have you ever done that? Right? This is what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is speaking in a way that is radically different. He's speaking with authority that no one speaks with. And he's healing people that are sick, casting out demons. And what authority is he using? And this is coming into question. And people are talking all about it. And so, he's coming off the Sermon on the Mount, coming off of, of healing a guy of leprosy, and we find this, let's do math, uh, Luke first, and we'll, it's a little bit long, it's like 10 verses, I think, but let's read the Luke passage. Um, it says this, when Je Jesus had finished saying all of this uh, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, who his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. And that one come and he comes. And I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him he said I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. 
Jesus hears this and says that he's in amazement of his faith and hasn't seen anything like this even in Israel. So we need to talk about a centurion is the first thing that we should talk about to kind of understand the story. If you have that picture, um, kind of a little bit of what a centurion looked like. Um, they were, um, the best way to describe it, I would say, is a man's man. Um, they are uh, the toughest, strongest, uh, most revered men in the Roman army. They were mostly uh, promoted for their courage uh, in a fight, their, their expertise with weapons, especially with their spear and their sword and their shield. Um, and they would be a battle-tested soldier that year after year in fighting, they would prove themselves as an elite soldier and someone the others looked up to. And often... They are from a low rank originally, but they work their way up, literally fight their way up. They battle their way up and eventually get promoted to a centurion. Centurions typically had 100 soldiers under their command, right? That's where we get the name, sometimes less. In a legion in the Roman army would have about 6,000 men around there in it. So there would be 60 centurions over each 100 men. And they uh, were not just strong and battle-tested and able to wield a sword and a spear, but they had other qualities as well. They, their character was high. They were able to lead. They were truthful and straightforward. And so a centurion would be revered and looked up to in the Roman army above just about anyone else. A couple of people, ancient writers, were said this. A centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skills in the use of sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the order he received than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean, well-dressed, and to have their arms constantly rubbed and bright. Another said, they must not be so much venturesome seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into a fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their post. Kind of the captain goes down with the ship idea. And the, the funny part about that, as you look at him, a centurion would always have more elaborate armor on. They would always have usually medals of their valor displayed. I mean, not much different than our own army. And then they would wear this helmet with either horsehair or feathers that were usually dyed. Sometimes you see them straight back and forth, otherwise sometimes side to side. And that would signify their rank. And they would fight right alongside their men, their sentry. Usually right in the front. Giving them an extremely high death rate. Because why? You're wearing feathers that say, hey, kill me. 
I'm the leader. Right? Like, that, that blows my mind. But this is what a centurion was. He was a leader of men, not just in word, but in action. Able to lay down the life of his, of, for his men, commanding them where to go. He also was supposed to keep them uh, in shape, training them. It says that they often carried a vine stick around. And in training, if you disobeyed, they would use it. One such centurion got the nickname that's literally translated, fetch me another. Um, and it came from that when he would uh, discipline uh, his soldiers, that he would beat them so hard, he would break the stick over their back and yell, fetch another. And so that's what they started calling him. I think I've shared this story before. At one point growing up, I told my mom, you can give me a hundred spankings and I won't do what you told me. She sent me to the other room, got a rod and started the hundred. <laughs> After about 30, it broke. And I'm using this a little loosely. She said, should I fetch another? Um, and I said, no, I'm done. I'll go do what you want. But this was a Roman centurion. He was... A man's man, he was highly respected, he was a fighter, a seasoned veteran, and a commander of men who would discipline them, often with brute force, if you didn't do what he said to do. Um, and so as we read this story, that's who you're dealing with. The other part um, that a centurion would have is a very high uh, rate of pay often double to 20 times what a normal soldier would make. So I would call them comfortable. The reason I do that, the first time I came to this church, I was coming from Ohio, from a pretty poor urban setting, and I was looking around, and I go, man, I kept telling people, you guys are rich. And I was always reminded, we're not rich, we're just comfortable. <laughs> and so... You could say the centurion was very comfortable, a lot like us. And because he was so comfortable, because of his rank and status in the Roman Empire, he would have had servants, he would have had slaves, right? That just would have been the common practice. He probably would have had multitude of slaves and servants at his command. And so we hear this story that starts to take place that this Seasoned veteran, this rough man, was worried about one of his servants, one of his slaves. So much so that he gets people to go to Jesus. Now, you can probably assume that, you know, the, the centurion, the soldiers would have been in the town. They would have been hearing the people start talking about Jesus. Often they're there to... Uh, keep the peace if there was any uprising. They would have made sure people paid their taxes. They would have had kind of uh, interactions day to day with the people to know what's going on. And so the centurion probably found out about this guy that was teaching in a way that no one had ever taught. Maybe he was even told about some of his sermons, his talks. And then maybe he heard about this man that was healed of leprosy. And how he has power over the sick. And the centurion goes and sends a couple of the Jewish leaders to go talk to him on his behalf. 
Now, another thing that is striking about this is not just the concern for the servant, but the fact that he was able to get Jewish leaders, Jewish elders to go do this for him. Got to remember this time frame. Rome conquered the world. It is the Roman Empire, okay? Now, they let people mostly believe what they want to believe, uh, you know, stay in their hometowns, but they had to pay the taxes, and they were under Roman rule. And the Jews hated this. The Jews, remember, are a people that God chose and said, I am going to take you, right, to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will be your God. I will drive out everyone before you. And because of their waywardness, they're turning away from them. They had been taken over and scattered and then brought back. And now, after all these years, they are under Roman oppression. And they believed that the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament was coming to destroy the Roman Empire. And it was only a matter of time before this was going to happen. And so they were waiting for this to happen. And in fact, if you study history, there are several uprisings by Jewish people, by Jewish men, who sometimes even got called the Messiah because they were trying to overthrow Rome, and that's what a Messiah would do. And so a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion would have mostly been despised. They were not someone that everyone was friends with. They were tolerated at best. But it says that the elders go on his behalf, and when they go to Jesus, it says that they plead, they beg, they say, if anyone deserves to have their servant healed, it's this guy. You don't understand. He's actually, he loves our nation, and he's built our synagogue. He's built the synagogue. He built the church. Can you imagine if some random person just came and built the church for us? Maybe that's what we need for uh, greater expectations. <laughs> Someone from Rome to come over here and build the church for us. Uh, right? They, he builds the church. If you actually go to Capernaum today, the synagogue is still there. It's not the one that he built. It's... That one has been crumbled and destroyed. But the, it says that the foundation that the synagogue is built on still to this day was the one that the centurion had paid for. Some scholars even say he might have had his own men build it, which is even crazier to think. Whether this was for selfish gains to keep the people under his control, to keep them quiet, or whether or not uh, he started to read and hear scripture and actually start to believe what was said about the God of the Jews, we're not sure. But he builds the synagogue. And so the elders come to Jesus and say, hey, this guy deserves it. You need to heal his servant. And so Jesus starts to go with them. And as they get closer to the house, a couple of the centurion's friends come out, maybe even some of his soldiers, say, whoa, hold on. I need you to stop there. You, you can't come in. See, I would have come to you myself, but I'm not even worthy to come to you. And you're definitely, I'm definitely not worthy for you to come into my house. This is striking. You have to see this. This is a man who would have been praised 
in battle, in fights. This is a man who would have been praised for his character. This is a man who would have been promoted because of those things. This is a man that the Roman Empire would have paid because of his great work. This is a man that everyone looked up to. Even the other Jews in the town, the people that shouldn't, are actually looking up to him and probably praising him for what he did. You built our synagogue. This is a man that if anyone should have a little bit of pride, it should be him. Maybe even conceited just a bit. But we don't get that. We get that this guy says, I'm not worthy. You, you can't come in here. We only hear this one other time, this phrase used. It's with John the Baptist. Remember when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and wants to get baptized? And he's, John the Baptist goes, you know, you should be baptizing me. He says that I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals which you walk upon. That's the same phrase he's using. I'm not worthy. You can't come in here. A man that everyone praised and revered, held up on the pedestal, yet he goes to Jesus and said, I'm not worthy. And then he goes, I'm a man under authority, and people are under authority under me. If I say go, they go, come, they come, especially in battle, right? That's what a centurion was there for. The reason he had the big red plumage, right, was so that he was easily visible to all the other soldiers, that they could call out for him and see him and get directions and stay as a group. And so he didn't have to be in a certain spot. He could yell out, come over here, line up. And they would line up. Go do this. And they went and did it. And so he says to Jesus that you don't, you don't need to be here. I say go and somebody goes for me because I have authority over them. You could just say be healed and they're healed. What he's implying, right, not so subtly, is that he believes Jesus has authority over sickness. That Jesus has authority over disease. That Jesus has some supernatural authority. And when Jesus hears this, he's amazed. No one in all of Israel has faith like this. There's only one other time that that word amazed or marveled is used. And it's used uh, for Israel in a negative light. Jesus comes to his hometown at one point, um, and the people there knew him growing up, and so they go, isn't, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this James's brother? And he goes on to say, you know, a prophet in his own hometown isn't respected. And then he says, I'm amazed at your lack of faith. The Israelites... The Jews, the ones who were given the revelation of Scripture first and who should have saw the Messiah coming, didn't. They had no faith. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. I relate to this story a little bit. I've told youth group uh, kids this story sometimes. The best one is um, my mom's at the dentist um, and she's talking to someone and she was trying to make uh, appointment for me when I was in college, um, and the girl there goes, Steve Fisher? 
did he go to Bowser? My mom's like, yeah. She's like, I was in class with him. Like, I went to school with him. I graduated with him. And she goes, oh, yeah, he's studying to be a pastor. She's like, what? <laughs> he used to make me cry. <laughs> now, that was my, Jesus didn't get that because of his own doing. You know, mine was my own doing. But when I go back, it's always, it's hard because they see me as something else, something I was before. Um, and it's hard to get respect in that sense. And so Jesus is kind of saying the same thing, and he's going, you grew up with me, and so you don't respect or see who I am. You don't have faith in who I am. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, just so you all know. Um, and, and so that word amazed or marveled, that's the only two times in Scripture it's used in conjunction with faith. Once for the negative of the, the lack of faith of the Jews, and once in the positive light in the faith of a Gentile centurion. And so as I think about this, this story in, in this part, here's what, here's what came to my mind. You know, when the elders came to Jesus, Jesus could have easily said, this guy must be a good guy. Look at all the people coming talking about him, saying he deserves it. This guy must have some good character. Your servant is healed based on your good character. It's not what he said. He could have said after he heard, oh, oh, I didn't realize you built the synagogue. Well, since you're such a religious man, your servant is healed because of how religious you are. That's not said either. He could have went to say, your servant is healed because you care for him so much. You show empathy and compassion. That's not what is said. The thing that it says is that he is amazed by his faith. And that faith alone. Not by anything else. Not that he was a centurion. Not that he had money. None of that. And I think for me and for you often, we get that confused. That our faith is somehow tied to our actions or our lack of actions. And we think who we are or what we do will determine if God accepts that faith. Right? We think if you are a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, well, my faith, God will accept that more. God could care less. He could care less if you were fired from 500 companies. Sometimes we think that, oh, it's my education. I went to an Ivy League school. God doesn't care. You could just get poison ivy a lot. I have some from the camping trip. He doesn't care. Right? You can be beautiful. Have a model's face. You could just have a model of a face only a mother could love. He doesn't care. I think I got a couple more in there. <laughs> I was telling Melissa last night. I said, do you think I should do these? I think they're funny. And it gets the point across. You could quote a book from the Bible or just know the Bible's a book. He doesn't care. <laughs> I don't know if I want to read that one now that I'm up here. Uh, you could be an athletic superstar or just watch, watch athletic superstars. God doesn't care. He will accept your faith. I guess I'll read it. You could have believed in him from when you wore diapers or when you start to wear diapers again.
I'm joking, but I'm also very serious. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you've been or how bad. It doesn't matter how rich or poor. The fact is, it's that faith that healed his servant. And it's the faith that is commended. It is the faith that he stands in awe of. It is the faith that he is amazed by. It is the faith that he is marveled by. Not his wealth, not his status, not what people think, but his faith alone. Sometimes I need to hear that. Because for me, uh, especially in my job, I think sometimes, you know, if, if I go to church enough or um, I'm really religious, that's going to be my faith. That's not it. You coming here every week might show that you have faith, but it might not. You can sit back there and ha or up here, I won't, I won't, or in the middle, won't exclude anyone, and have no faith. Faith is a hard thing to define. It's a hard thing to judge. You know, faith, if you look it up, is... Uh, online, I think it said uh, the complete trust or belief in someone. In the Bible, it says something a little different. If we have that, and this is a verse that most of you probably know. It says that in Hebrews 11, kind of that big faith chapter, right? Hebrews 11, 1. Maybe not. Um, right, it says that faith, oh, I got to remember it, um, is, is not up there. Let me look it up. I don't want to misquote and have somebody email me. <laughs> Sorry, I was camping all week. You know, these are... <laughs> oh. If I can't find this fast, that says something about my Bible skills. Faith is the confidence in what we... <laughs> Seriously? I think we need to destroy the tape so John doesn't see this when he gets back. <laughs> you will not hear from me the rest of the summer. <laughs> Faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the insurance about what we do not see. Faith. Okay, next part of this, let's transition. Uh, let's look at the story in Luke. Uh, it's uh, uh, in Matthew. It's a little shorter. Um, and before we do that, just really quick, let me, it, there's going to be some differences. See if you can spot them. But remember in this that when we read the Gospels, okay, the Gospels were all inspired, yes, by the Holy, Holy Spirit. We believe that. But they are written by different people. And different people had different agendas when they wrote it. Luke, we find it right in the first chapter. He actually is a Gentile doctor, and he's writing for this guy named Theophilus. And he says that, I know there's a lot of accounts of Jesus, but I want to give you a detailed, accurate account of what I know. And so he writes it out. The same thing, actually, we believe he writes Acts, and he follows Paul around, and he writes an account of it. And so it's really a book written by a Gentile, not a Jew, that's all... I think most of us, maybe a couple of you, aren't. But that's most of us are Gentiles, and it's for Gentiles. Now, Matthew, on the other hand, is different than this. Matthew is written by a Jew for Jews. And the main purpose 
is to prove that Jesus was the Messiah and that all the prophecies in the Old Testament were coming true in Jesus. This is why so often when people read Matthew, including myself, I don't get half of it. Because there are all of these references that a Jew would understand. That a Jew that knew the scriptures well would, would get and understand and go, Oh, he's alluding to this in Isaiah. Or this in Jeremiah. Or this in Psalms. He's making the point that Jesus is the Messiah. That the Old Testament, the scriptures prophesied about. And so remember this as we read this, that that was Matthew's point. Luke was to give a detailed, accurate picture. Matthew was to make the point that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews had talked about. So let's read together. You'll see a lot of it's the same. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. When a soldier under me, with soldiers under me, I tell this one go and he goes and this one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished, amazed, marveled, and said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Can you spot the difference? What's the difference? The centurion in Matthew actually comes. Where in Luke, we have people going on his behalf. This is a huge scripture, if you didn't know, that critics of the Bible will use to say that the Bible contradicts itself. And they have an argument. But if you start to take... I would say, a more educated look at this, you could start to explain some of the differences. One, we already talked about it. Matthew is writing for a point that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about, and he's writing it for Jewish people, which means all of his stuff is going to highlight Jewish scripture, the Old Testament. He's going to talk about that is going to talk about the Jewish people in general. And so often, he condenses. In fact, all of Scripture is condensed, right? Like, you understand that Jesus, this isn't all of Jesus' story. You know, we get, in some of the Gospels, his birth. We get one story at the temple of, you know, when he was a kid. And then we kind of fast forward a whole bunch of years and get then kind of his ministry, this three-year window that most of the gospel is written about. It's that window. Three years. And so you have 30-some, if you, whatever you want to argue, that we don't have. And so they took it and said, this is what we deem most important. Actually, it's what God deemed most important. And so when you condense something or trying to 
tell you a point or a story. It's not that you are lying. You are trying to get across the point you're getting across. If I was to say this room was packed, right? There was no seats available. All these rows were full. Well, that's pretty true. And if the point was that our church is always full, you know, that's what I would say. But if I was going to say, oh, we always have room for visitors. There's one there, right? And there's one over there. And I would kind of make a different point to highlight what I'm highlighting. And so Matthew does this. Also, when you look, uh, and even today, when someone speaks on someone else's behalf, they often have authority given to them by that person. If a king made a decree, well, today he would just type it on Twitter. Um, but if a de- king made a decree back then, he would have to get it out to his empire. And so he would send messengers and writers with the stuff written down with the king's seal on it. And they would open it up in the town square and say, you know, listen up. Here's what the king says. And then they would read it. And then all the villagers would probably be going back to the people that didn't hear it. And the people would say, what did the king say? And they would tell them. They wouldn't go, well, the king actually didn't say it. It was his messenger that said it. It wasn't the real king. The messenger had the authority. It was the king's word. And so when Matthew does it kind of reverse, he shortens the story. The centurion comes. He's not highlighting some of the stuff that Luke highlighted. He's getting across the point, the theological point. Something to remember as you think about the Bible. The Bible is history. But the Bible is not written as a history book. It's written as a theological book to make points about God for you to understand. Is there history? Yes. Is it true? Absolutely. Is the Bible in chronological order? No. Are stories in chronological order? Often they're not. But that doesn't matter when it's the point you're trying to make, the theological point. And so you have to remember that when reading this stuff, that it's the It's the truth that matters. It's the point that is being said. So we get this centurion coming. And the story is a lot the same. He shows humility, right? He says, you can't come. Jesus is amazed by that. But then it's the ending that changes. Well, the ending stays the same. The ending part A changes. The message to the Jews. Dina, can you put uh, that, that last part up for me? One back. This is what he says. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We read that often, and I just want to skip right by it. I don't like talking about weeping and gnashing of teeth. But this was directed, it says he actually turns around and the people following him. Remember, Jesus is constantly being followed for what he says and what he does. And so as he's interacting, this interaction is taking place, he has people following him. And he probably a lot of Jews. And he turns to them and he says, guess what? There's going to be a lot of people coming to this feast. There's going to be people from the east, people from the west, but the kingdom, the, the people in the kingdom are going to get the boot. And they're going to be thrown into 
darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew often uses weeping and gnashing of teeth as an illustration, uh, kind of this emotion to get you to have emotional response of, of pain. I don't know. Oh, good, my wife left. I don't know if you ever slept next to someone that grinds their teeth, gnashes their teeth at night. She doesn't. We were on vacation a couple weeks ago, and I'm sleeping, in, you know, obviously in bed with my wife, and my son is sleeping on the floor, who I find out grinds his teeth. It sounds like he's trying to make sawdust. It is the best picture of hell I could ever, I could ever tell you or listen to. The grind, I was going to pull up kids grinding their teeth to let you listen to it, but it's, it's so bad I did, didn't even want to do it. If you've ever heard someone grinding away on their teeth and the sound that makes, this is what Matthew is trying to allude to. This pain, this, this suffering that is going on in, in darkness. Is there literally in hell going to be people grinding and gnashing their teeth? Maybe. But the point is being made. And the point is being made to the Jews that, hey, you think you're in, you might not be in. Because here's what he's saying. That it's, once again, the faith of the centurion that gets his servant healed. It's not because he is God's chosen people, which the Israelites were. But then so often, because I'm God's chosen people, that means I've inherited God's blessing and I don't have to do or believe anything. I, I see that all the time when you talk to people. Hey, you know, like, you go to church, and they say, oh, you know, I'm... Catholic, or I'm Lutheran, or I'm even Christian, right? They go, oh, like, where do you, well, we don't, you know, we don't really go to church. We don't really participate in anything of God. But, you know, my parents were this, or my parents were that, so that makes me it too. Guess what? It doesn't. You can't inherit your parents' faith. Students, your parents can be the biggest Christian in the room right now. That is not your faith. Faith is yours. It is going to be judged by what you do with that, not what they do, not the faith that they have. And so Jesus gives this really stern warning to the Jews that says, hey, look, you better be careful. You think, you know, you're the chosen people, and you are. But if you don't have faith in me, you're not going to be at the seat at the kingdom of heaven. Guess who is? It's the centurion over here. He's going to have the seat. It's the people from the east and the west that are going to have the seat, and not you. And so the band can come up, and I'll start to wrap up here. There's kind of a warning and encouragement in this. The warning is out of Matthew. And even though it was directed at the Jews, it could be directed at me or you today. That just because you sit in this room right now, doesn't mean that your faith is huge, that your faith is big. Maybe it is. Maybe you have great faith in God. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. You can't inherit it. You don't just say, oh, I, you know, I got it because I came to church. It's not how it works. And so often, myself included, you know, I look at what I do, the events I attend, the small groups that I'm a part of, as determining whether or not 
I'm connected with God, that I have faith in him. But I think God looks at something much different. God looks at the heart, right? It says man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. It says if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you will be saved, right? He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Faith is at the heart level. I don't have a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven step on how you can get more faith. You know, the Bible does say faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God. So being here today hopefully encourages you in your faith, hopefully grows your faith. The encouragement on the flip side of that warning is the same, it's kind of the same thing. It's that despite who we are, what we do, Faith is what matters. That's encouraging to me for, you know, someone that another kid goes, there's no way he could be a pastor. There's no way that kid could have been a Christian or grown up to be a Christian. That stuff doesn't matter to God anymore. And so it doesn't matter, right, if we're rich or poor, right? doesn't matter if I'm athletic, can barely get off the couch. doesn't matter if I'm sick or healthy doesn't matter, you know, if I have all the respect in the world or I'm a lowly little servant. God looks at the heart. God judges the faith. And that, to me, is encouraging. And here's the best part. It says that even if you have small faith, even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. And it goes on to say that even when you and I are faithless, he remains faithful. Isn't, I don't know about you, that's encouraging for me on bad days. That God's not going to disown me because my faith was lacking this, this week. That I've confessed belief and faith in him and that covers me by his grace. Right? My grace is sufficient for you. That's encouraging to me. That he is a faithful God, a graceful God. That despite my past, right, that if I have faith, he is going to be with me and is never going to leave me or forsake me. So we're going to sing about that as we end. I don't want to end on, you know, like doom or gloom. God is a faithful God. God is a God of grace. And there is coverage for when you mess up. There is coverage for when I mess up. So, would you stand up? Uh, and we are going to sing a rendition of Amazing Grace. <laughs>